This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Another wild weekend wraps up in world football, and it's us here on a kick in the grass to break it all down. Follow us on Twitter. I am at Dan Riccio underscore. He is at SN Jeff Blair. DMs are open. Send us questions for the show to our inboxes. We answer all of your questions in the injury time segment at the end of the show. If you are enjoying us, hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcatcher so that way you never miss an episode. We appreciate if you'd leave a review as well. Our guest today is Tariq Panja of the New York Times. And Jeff, I'm beginning to think that this is certainly... Uh, going to be as weird a year in world football and certainly in the top European leagues that, that we've seen in a very long time, maybe ever. Uh, you, you're not convinced that Astonville <laughs> and Everton are going to, uh, are going to carry this, are going to carry this through to the end. Well, I, you know, it's, I, I think, listen, I, I think it's, I think it's a real reminder for every league, uh, around the world, not just soccer, but hockey and baseball and football, et cetera, et cetera. And and I think the reminder is, you know, we've been focused so much on how teams and how leagues handle the immediate emergence from the pandemic, how they handle the restart and what happens after that. I think we need to really shift focus and look ahead to what it means for the next season. Right, because the, the the Prem is the first league we've seen that's finished a season. And I'm sorry, the European soccer leagues are the first leagues we've seen that's finished a season and then started a season. And just look look at the tables. Look at the tables yeah. around Europe. It, it's not just the Prem. Look at the tables around Europe. In a lot of cases, you know, they're 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 completely upside down or teams that we thought would you know, have a relatively easy time of it based on what they did last year, uh, you know, have scuffled. So I, I just, I'm, I'm prepared for this. You know, are we going to see a team like somebody do what Lester did? I don't think so, but I'm prepared for somebody very strange or somebody really unfancied to win one of the, the major leagues in Europe. Cause I just think there's, there's a follow-up effect to having to react to the pandemic that I don't think we're going to see until the next year. We're going to see it in baseball. We're certainly going to see it in the NHL and the NBA. I, I think that because you know, athletes, Dan, are so programmed now. I mean, even their off-season is programmed, right? Everything they do in the off-season, their downtime, it's a certain amount of time. Uh, the, the the workouts that they do, when they start skills training, the individual skills training, all this stuff is so planned out. And that schedule has been completely disrupted by the pandemic. So I'm prepared for a lot of I'm prepared for a lot of really strange stuff in in 2021. Well, I mean, you mentioned all the tables are looking weird right now. Everton leads the Premier League. Uh, AC Milan back from the dead lead the Serie A. Real Sociedad and Villarreal are top of the table in Spain. Uh, Lille is leading. Yeah, Lille is leading league, uh, and Red Bull Leipzig is top of the table in the German Bundesliga. So uh, there, yeah. there's your roundup of the top five leagues. Not what you would have expected. 
when we started this a couple of weeks ago. But what a weekend it was. Real Madrid and Barcelona both lost. Spurs blew a 3-0 lead. Chelsea a two-goal advantage. Milan won the Derby de la Madonina thanks to a doppietta from the ageless wonders, Latan Ibrahimovic. He's the best. He is the best. It's unbelievable he's what he's able to two do. Two weeks after COVID. You know, and and again, I love this tweet about COVID, right? Bad, bad move COVID or whatever it was. You know, how dare COVID, how dare COVID attack me? Find some, find, find some lesser man. Go visit Messi. Don't bother with, don't bother with Zlatan. Zlatan has no time for your, for your pandemic. It really is. He is, he, he, you know, you know, he, he reminds me of in terms of just all around weirdness and all around just the ability to to make stuff focus on him and yet transcend at the same time. He's like Eric Cantona, the same thing. It's like just a, you wouldn't even call it a train wreck, but he's just this person that everything seems to focus on. And mm-hmm. he handles it with a combination of uh, cockiness, arrogance, hard work, and you know, just blinding skill. I just think he's fascinating. I've, and I've thought even, you know, there's, there's a certain aspect of him that's, that's, you know, that that's cultivated. Right. I mean, I do think yeah. that Zlatan sometimes sits down and says, okay, what can I say today? That's been, that, that will be outrageous. But all that aside, he is, he, he's the only person I've seen in my lifetime that comes close to Cantona. For that, uh, you know, maybe Gascoigne in some ways, but even then, Gascoigne was always it was kind of like a train wreck, and I don't think I, I, I don't think Slatan's a train wreck. And even after the win uh, over Inter, uh, he scores the two goals, and he tweets out, "Milano never had a king; they have a god." <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a picture of uh, his teammates coming over to hug him, uh, and it's uh, it, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean. To, to do this at 39 years old, uh, to come back mm-hmm. from MLS, he's had some big injuries. Uh, he had COVID a couple of weeks ago. It's it's r- truly insane that he's able to pull this off. And, hey, maybe Milano is uh, even better than we had originally thought. Uh, but we'll start with Liverpool and Everton, the Merseyside mm. derby that uh, took over. That's great the headlines on Saturday. And I mean, it's, it's rare that this is a top of the table clash, Jeff, but it certainly provided everything that we've come to expect from the Merseyside Derby over the years. Yeah, this is, I mean, it had everything. It also had a really good Everton team, you know, which is something we haven't always, haven't always seen. A really good Hamas. Like Hamas is just, um, the way he was picking apart Liverpool with some of his passes was just incredible. I mean, I, I have to admit, I really underestimated him. You know, I look, I remember him from the World Cup, and, and yeah, he was a terrific player and a terrific young player. But this is a guy who, yeah, I think a lot of us looked at his career and thought, okay, it's just kind of stalled. And he'll come over to England, and it'll take him a while to get going, and he'll probably turn into an okay player. I, I didn't think he would be a player capable of dominating games right from the get-go but um he is he is he is something else and i'm beginning to think in a lot of ways he's tailor-made for the way the premiership is being played now i don't know if danny i don't know how you feel but i don't know if even five six seven years ago he comes over and 
and has the impact that he is now. But I just think that the tactics have changed so much and there's such an emphasis now on quickness and, and, and pace and less on sort of thuggery that, that I think he's tailor made for the prem. I, I admit, I, I really, I really undersold him coming into the prem. I really did. Yeah. And uh, well, it's, it's, he's really definitely the, the fulcrum, the linchpin right now of, of Everton and this team and, and where they're able to go. They still are at the top of the table even after this. Uh, they managed the 2-2 draw, coming back twice against Liverpool. But it, the story is, has shifted to all about Virgil van Dijk's uh, ACL injury mm-hmm. after the horror tackle from Jordan Pickford, who was not red-carded in the moment and will not receive uh, any discipline from the FA after the fact either. Um, it's clearly, and, and I believe the VAR has kind of admitted to some of this, that it, it was focused on the offside in the moment and right. completely neglected the tackle. Now, they still could have shown a red card to Jordan Pickford, but they were too busy determining if uh, an inch of Virgil van Dyke's elbow was offside <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the video assistant referee rather than focusing on this incredibly atrocious tackle. Like I, I it, it I, I saw Jonathan Wilson at the guardian mention It's kind of like a parking attendant handing out a ticket while there's somebody trying to steal the car at the same time. You know, it's like you're, you're charging the smaller offense, but not the one that deservedly uh, needs to be shown some punishment. And this completely flips everything on its head. Now that Virgil van Dyke is out for what? Six to eight months, I think. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things about that play. Um, I I didn't I didn't get I, I'm not as up in arms about that play as a lot of people are. I I thought the Richarlison tackle on Thiago was frankly much 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 worse. And maybe that's because I I kind of, I tend to give keepers the benefit of the doubt. But you know, I think in a lot of ways the criticism of VAR is unfair because it, this isn't. Soccer isn't hockey. You can't stop the play as soon as a penalty is called because there's a matter of possession. You know, there's a matter of who, uh, 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 of where it occurs and all that. So you're going to get incidents like that where play continues. And, and um, I, I just think that's, that's the nature of, of using VAR in, in football. And I, I, don't know, I don't know how you get around that. Uh, but but honestly, yeah, it, could it have been a red card? I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a red card. I can see why a red card wasn't necessarily given in that instance. I mean, certainly the fact that there's no uh, retrospective red card or no supplemental red card, I guess supplemental is the right word, the fact that there's no supplemental red card would suggest to me that the correct decision was made. Uh, look, it, it's it's off. It's an awful injury. Uh, obviously, Virgil van Dyke is hugely important. Uh, I don't think anybody likes to see any athlete suffer an injury like that. But, man, I, I had a, I, again, the, the, the tackle, Richarlison's tackle in Thiago is the one that, that really, like, that's the one that really stood out for me because I think that was a deliberate attempt to injure. I don't think Jordan Pickford was deliberately attempting to injure Virgil van Dyke, but I do think Richarlison went in with the idea of taking out Thiago. It, it was, they were both um, pretty, pretty horrible. Um, like with Pickford, it, it's, it's kind of just who he is. You know, he's just this, <laughs> he's a total wild card. Like you'll, he'll, correct. he's made, 
you know, in that in the match alone, he makes some incredible saves. Uh, the goal that was called off that could have been the winner, that maybe should have been the winner from Jordan Henderson, uh, is you know, is him as a goalkeeper, and you're like, what what the heck are you doing? How'd you let that one in, man? And um, also, he's just this fireball of energy that rushes into tackles. He even did it he's with reckless. England. Yeah, he's he a reckless player. He even did it with England against Denmark yep. uh, during the international break uh, that caused the Christian Eriksen penalty that won Denmark that match. I mean, that's 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 Pickford. Reckless is probably the best way uh, to to describe him. And yeah, I don't think there was intent there, but it's for me. I mean, he goes in with the scissor tackle towards the leg and the knee. So that's to me, that's a, that's a red card every time, whether it's intentional uh, or not. Um, but. Now that we do see this, so Everton come out with the the point, and Van Dyke, um, it had it had me thinking, Jeff. Like, is is this the most indispensable player in the Premier League right now? And I I, I tried to think of who else is in this conversation, and and the names I came up with are Harry Kane. Yep, I got him. Obama Yang. Yep. De Bruyne. Mm-hmm. And. A little bit off the board, but Jack Grealish. Um, I got Grealish too, with Aston Villa. Yeah, no, I, I De Bruyne obviously. Um, I, I guess, although I, I just assume that you know, it depends. Six to eight months, I think you could say a lot of folks are irreplaceable. You know, De Bruyne. If De Bruyne is out for a couple of weeks, I think Man City has enough covered for right. that. But if you're talking a couple of weeks, I would certainly include him. I, I think Jack Grealish definitely. Um, I, I, I think he, I think well, they're not a premier league everything. team without him. No, they aren't. <laughs> you know, the other guy that I think that, that, and I hope it doesn't happen because I love watching them play. I'd, I'd be fascinated to see how well Liverpool does without Trent Alexander Arnold on the pitch for a prolonged period of time. And, you know, I think there's another guy where we missed and you can put him in conjunction with Virgil van Dyke, and that's Allison. Because I think a lot of what Liverpool does in the back stems from one confidence in Allison, two his ability to marshal the defense. So I mean that that combination. I don't think I'll put it this way. I don't think there's a combination in the Premiership right now. If you said to me, two guys, take these two guys out of the lineup, and it, and and it's almost a death knell for a team. I think Allison and Van Dyke combined. Would be here's something to keep in mind about Virgil Van Dyke, though. You know, and, and you can look at his off the stats and everything; they're off the charts. With Virgil Van Dyke, Liverpool's won 72 games, drawn 14, lost seven. Yeah, that that's and he's obviously a focal point of so much of what they do defensively. He he, I don't think there's been a signing, maybe I don't know how many years that has completely tra- that transformed a team the way his signing did. And the other thing, too, is at this stage with the transfer window just closed and Liverpool being what they are, Danny, who is going to be able to come in? Like, Who could you go out and get in the transfer window to immediately address that situation? Yeah, and, and, and they'll have to yeah, wait till January it's, now. Yeah, it's hard to argue. And, you know, if you're Liverpool and you get through it, okay, uh, until January, then maybe you have to reassess. But also let's keep in mind that you know, this is a team, Liverpool, that I think has realistic expectations of doing more than simply winning the Premier League. This this may force this may force Jurgen Klopp to make a decision, and I don't think he'd do it. He, I don't think he'd do it publicly, but this may may force him to make a decision about okay, what do we focus on? Do we focus on the Prem 
or do we focus in the Champions League? If it's me, if I'm Jurgen Klopp, I'm focusing on the Premier League title and successfully defending it. But uh, yeah, Virgil Virgil Van Dijk is just is so important to what they do. And as I said, in conjunction with Allison, um, you know they're going to have to hold the fort for a while. Well, you you could you could make the argument that Everton don't score either of their goals if. Um... If Van Dyke is on the field, right? Correct. Both headers. Uh, Michael Keane, you know, it should have been stopped by Adrian as well. I think if Allison is in net, he stops that. Calvert Lewin, um, he's really becoming one of my favorite kind of traditional number nines in the, in the mm-hmm. modern game. Um, but e- even him, you know, you wonder if, if Van Dyke is on the field at that point, does he get to that header? And now, like the drop off is a big part of this conversation, too. Um, and, and where the depth is. For Liverpool, they foregoed signing a center back in the summer. They even sold Dejan Lovren. And now they're left with Matip and Joe Gomez as their starting center back pair, which, mm-hmm. all due respect, I, I don't know if that's <laughs> a Champions League material, uh, if they're going to go be contenders for that again. Uh, Fabinho becomes their third option, which is another issue because then you're damaging the base of your midfield if you're playing mm-hmm. him as your center back. Then you go got to go down to youth players. Guys like Reese Williams and, and Nathaniel Phillips are, are being named as guys who could potentially step up in the absence of, of Van Dyke. This is, this is a massive loss. I mean, he's the best center half in the world, so of course it is. But there's not much depth there for Liverpool and... To your point of having to choose something, Jeff, six matches in the next 18 days for Liverpool. I know. Uh, They're going to come fast and furious. That's going to be the story for a lot of the the Champions League and Europa League teams. But uh, this is a lot of matches to be relying on on two guys. And Van Dijk, 93 matches since January of 2018. He had not missed a Premier League match uh, in that time. Uh, He's just been a a bit of an Iron Man for them as well. the other arguments, uh, Harry Kane, uh, you've seen him this year. I mean, he's already got 12. He's been directly involved in 12 goals. Um, there's, there was a lot of talk of whether or not he'd be able to thrive under Mourinho. I think we have that answer. 30 goals he's been directly involved in in the 27 matches he's played with Jose in charge. I, I know his pregame talks aren't really captain material for you, Jeff, but uh, Harry Kane is is certainly the heartbeat of Spurs. And you know, for me, Jack Grealish he's everything to Aston Villa. And and I think he's one of those players that if you were to, let's say he did make the move to Manchester United, who was Mm -hmm. rumored. Mm -hmm. I I think it, it's not, it it just, he doesn't have the same impact at at a big club. Like he does with Aston Villa. Maybe he gets lost a little bit at a United or another big club. And he he just doesn't because right now he's the heart and soul of Villa. And he mm-hmm. does everything for them. Goals, assists, even averages more than two tackles per match. He's He does everything for them. And if he went to a big club, I just don't think he'd have that same level of impact. Without Grealish, Villa are, are essentially nothing. And right now, uh, they are on a perfect record. Only they and Milan have a perfect record in Europe's top five leagues. Yeah, I think he. you're right. If you put him in any of the quote-unquote top teams, maybe with the exception of Spurs, uh, because I think I think Jose Mourinho could could make real really good use of Jack Grealish, but if he goes any if he goes any place else, he isn't the focal point of the team. I look at Jack Grealish first of all. I think he made a smart decision staying at Villa. I think it's going to help his England career enormously because he's always every time Gareth Southgate goes to watch a match and and Villa plays, 
he's going to be looking at Jack Grealish. So I think whoever's advising him made a smart move. And I'll tell you this, though. I, I think down the road, Jack Grealish is the next England player who makes a big money move to maybe to uh, to La Liga. Uh, I don't know about Serie but I think he's the next English player to make, to, to make that move. I would love to see him. I would love to see him take his game to a place like La Liga and to a really good team, like to a, like to a Real or, you know, a Barca team going through a transition. I would love to see that because I think he would be, a, I, I think watching him in La Liga would be fascinating. As for Obama Yang, uh, not so much this year, but he has certainly been everything for Arsenal uh, in the last little while. Uh, but right now he is uh, struggling to get going. Uh, I think he has just five shots mm -hmm. uh, so far in this Premier League season. So uh, that's something that Mikel Arteta certainly has to figure out moving forward. Yeah, he's got to look. We, we've said this. I, I, this may have been one of the first things we talked about when we started the show. I, I just don't, I don't think, between Lacazette, Aubameyang, uh, and Nketiah. I, 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 I don't think, and, and you can throw Pepe in there as well, I don't think Mikel Arteta has quite figured, out, figured it out yet. I, mm. Again, if it's me, Lacazette doesn't get anywhere near the pitch. Um, but I, look, I, given, given the amount of stuff on Arteta's plate and given how well for the most part, he has done with his tactics. I tend to think he's going to he's going to figure it all out, and I would be willing to bet that by the end of the year, you see Aubameyang uh, either leading or, or, or near the top of the uh, uh, of the Golden Boot race in the Prem. So Liverpool now they get ready to begin the Champions League without their top star, and Ugh. potentially, you know, they. I would assume we're a favorite, but now going in without Alisson, without Virgil van Dijk, maybe uh, they aren't so much the favorite. Uh, it starts this week, the top matchups, PSG and Man United. Uh, Atletico Madrid travels to Bayern Munich to take on the defending champs. Uh, Lazio hosting Dortmund, another one of the uh, heavy-hitting matchups to open the campaign for the Champions League this year. And what feels like a very strange year, and it is, Give me your top three teams heading into the start of the Champions League, Jeff. I, I think Bayern is far, Bayern's far and away number one uh, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is I think of all the, the top teams in Europe, they probably have – they're the best team with the easiest path to winning their domestic title. I mean, with all due respect to Leipzig and Dortmund, Bayern's better than them. Uh, they've done it before with this core group. They've got depth. Thomas Muller, you know, those of us who wondered whether his return from the pandemic, was that just going to be, you know, uh, was it going to be a flash in the pan? He and Robert Lewandowski, their link-up play has been remarkable this year. So they're both back. I think Bayern is far and away. And, and Hansi Flick is showing he knows how to utilize the depth of his team. I think they're far and away, like, miles ahead of everybody else. I want to see what Atleti does. Right. Um, I wouldn't say I'm all in on them, Dan, but you're close. I could be. I could be. <laughs> okay. I could be. I, I, I want to see what they do. What they do early. Suarez uh, early is off to this. a great start there. Yeah, and I, I just and and Suarez to me is. You, Luis Suarez is a great Champions League player because. He, you know, there's 
you can play him any he, he can play any match he can play any game he can play against any opponent he's a handful i think his game transcends leagues those are my those are my top two and man i i know you're gonna you're you're probably you, you may not believe i'm gonna say this i i, I think Juve as well i, I think you love- as well i I just, yeah, I, I know the issues with the with, with the club. I'm not I'm not entirely certain they're going to win Italy. Um, I really not. But but I I I will take I will take them in this type of competition because I do think they have a tendency, Danny. They're going to show up and win some really really tough matches. Yeah, it's I I do have a hesitation there. I I think there's. A lot of questions that um, Andrea Pirlo still has to answer. I mean, defensively, they've been a kind of a gong show since since he's taken over this year and early this year as he tries to figure out the best version of Juventus with the new players that he has at hand and some of the injuries that they are going through with Delict still out uh, at the start of this season. Obviously, they don't have Ronaldo. They uh, Alvaro Morata though has looked the part so far and has been a, a strong number nine for them. Uh, already since coming in from uh, from Atleti, and you know that's kind of familiar grounds for him as mm-hmm. well. I, I, I didn't mm-hmm. love I didn't love the move, but I think Pirlo has a good understanding of what his strengths are as a player, having been played with him just a few years ago, and can get the most out of Morata in that sense. Bayern is still top. I think that's pretty obvious uh, for me. Manchester City. It's Pep's last year. Like we talked about this uh, in the return to play last year, Jeff. They've they've got to find a way uh, to to do better in this competition. If not this year, then when? Um, and I think I'd throw PSG in there again. Uh, oh. they, they they've got they've got the high end talent at the front, and you know once you get into the tournament format, uh, stars win matches, and that's what happened to them. Uh, in the return to play. And that's what I think can happen again for them this year. They've still got Mbappe. They've still got Neymar. They get to those late stages. Those guys can win matches and heck they almost won the damn thing uh, against Bayern just a few months ago. Uh, All right. We've, we've got to hurry up. So we've got Tariq Panja coming up of the New York times. I do want to get to this though. The supporter shield fiasco in MLS. Um, the Supporter Shield Foundation, which uh, raise your hand if you had no idea there was a Supporter Shield Foundation until this weekend, um, announced on Saturday that they would not be awarding the shield to this season's MLS regular season champion, as is customary because of an extremely unbalanced schedule, supporters not being in attendance, among a few other things. Um, TFC have had their say. They are far and away the <laughs> leaders and the favorites for this trophy. What's your take on this, Jeff? I think it's a, uh, I think it's an absolutely proper decision. Oh my! You know, goodness. it's very much, it's very much in keeping with what we would see in Europe. I, I think there's a a there's a sound principle behind it, and that is it is the supporters' shield. Uh, we aren't seeing supporters at a lot of matches. The best team in the league, the team that would win the supporters' shield, hasn't played as far as I know. I don't think they played a home match in front of their in front of their in front of their own fans. Uh, unlike North America, there is a very there's a very strong 
there's a very there, there's a, a real zealousness in Europe when it comes to fans and the importance of fans in the stands. I mean, there are a lot of political overtones about the importance of having fans there. And I, I think there's been a concern in Europe about, I think people are happy that football has carried on during the pandemic because people like to watch football. I think there's a concern that the importance of fans beyond the economics of the game, there's a concern that the importance of fans has been damaged a bit by the ability of football to continue in empty stadiums, you know, basically on a sound stage. And, you know, we saw that MLS with the bubble. So I think this is a reminder of how important fans believe they are to the game. Quite frankly, win the title. You know, win the, let, let's you know, win the title and, and be satisfied with the title. I think there's a real strong message sent here. If it's me, do I want to win a supporter shield in the season where I haven't played in front of my supporters? No, I, I, I think it's entirely defensible. And as I said, as I said, it is a very European decision. We, the fans, we, the supporters are the lifeblood of the game. And we don't feel for a variety of reasons that a supporter shield should be awarded this year. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm completely, I'm completely at peace with that decision. I have no issue with it at all. I could not disagree with you more. And you can't do that. We're not allowed to disagree. <laughs> here's, here's why there, uh, there is no supporter shields without the players, without the teams, without the clubs. The supporter no, there's shield. There's no supporter shield without the supporters, Dan. Well, we then go the support. Dan, Call it the Dan Riccio Trophy. Go, the, go support your local Sunday league and, and hand it out there then because I, I think what this Supporter Shield group has done is completely, um, you know, they've, they've gone opposite of what they claim to exist for, and that is to protect the Supporter Shield. I think they've damaged the credibility of this award. Mm. Look, MLS, even in the best of times, Jeff, has trouble um, – convincing people that their regular season matters. But you know what? You cover the league for a long enough time and you talk to players, you talk to coaches and, and execs around the league. They care about that. They care about the supporter shield because they, they all grew up watching European soccer and understanding that the league table matters. Right. But in, in this North American system, it's always been diminished because MLS cup is the ultimate goal. Even if they respect and enjoy and chase the supporter shield during the regular season. It's but such the, a narrow-minded decision. The league table me. is the league table is irrelevant this year. The league table makes no. It, it, it's not telling you anything about anything this year. Well, uh, because they've added seventy-five playoff teams, and <laughs> and, yeah, and essentially but, everybody gets a chance at MLS Cup. It, to me, it means even more this year because uh, you've you've had teams. Like Toronto FC is the perfect example where they're playing in Nowheresville, Connecticut, away from their families, sacrificing themselves and their 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 lives and everything that they've done this year to, to try and win this trophy and to try and go after MLS Cup afterwards in the short stint of a tournament. If if you're not if you're not 
honoring the team that is best through the course of the league season, then what are we doing here? Why are we having football matches in the midst of a pandemic? Just to throw them on television to decide which 75% of the league gets a chance at MLS Cup? I mean, yes. give me a break, Jeff. That's exactly what we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. It, it, to me, it reinforces the importance of the MLS, of the MLS Cup. It, yeah, the, again, the Supporters' Shield, uh, to me, it's largely symbolic. Yeah, uh, people talk about the team that wins the MLS Cup. The Supporters' Shield is kind of the, you know, it's almost like the, you know, the consolation prize, right? It's like a combination of a silver, not even the silver medal. I would, I would argue that finishing as the runner-up in the MLS Cup is more important than than. Well, that's than that's precisely the problem. Shield. Their their trophy is already struggling for credibility, and now they've just damaged it even further. I think it sends. I think it sends a message. I think it sends a message about the importance of the importance of of uh, of supporters. Now, now, what I will I will agree with you in this. It would be great to have a lot more tra uh, more transparency into into who said what about right. the decision, like how this decision came about. I, you know, that press release was kind of, you know, kind of <laughs> it was out of nowhere. Flat. Van Vanny but, even said they thought it was a joke. Yeah, but I, I beyond that, um, I, I I get it completely. Uh, there is. More than any other sport, I think there we are going to see a I wouldn't say a backlash from fans, but I, I think football fans, for a variety of reasons, feel that there is a need to remind the people who run their leagues. And I'm not just talking about MLS. I'm talking about every league. There's, it's like because there's so much money in the game and I and I know it's compared to other leagues that isn't the case in MLS but but work with me on this because there's so much money in the game I think there's a a, a really a, there's a, a there's a real political interest in the part of supporters ensuring that their importance never gets forgotten and I I, I would tell you this if 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 this shield had any other name if it had the Dan Reach or the kick in the grass shield trophy then it'd be fine but I really do think because that then they would go ahead and award it. But I think the name of this thing, the Supporters Shield, I, I, I can see the argument that in honor of the supporters or in recognition of the fact supporters have been largely absent this year, we are not going to give this guy. I, I, have, no, I have no problem with it. Uh, I, I agree with you on that, that uh, you can't forget uh, the importance that fans have to the game because, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, the fans are the reason we have football uh, to watch all across the world. Uh, we're not we're not going to solve this uh, debate uh, no. this week, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll continue talking about it as uh, the situation develops and whether or not MLS uh, figures something else out. But uh, TFC far and away the leaders after another win last night, and even uh, on pace to set a uh, points per game record in MLS. Uh, Dan Richo and Jeff Blair coming up next on a kick in the grass to Rick Panja of the New York Times on. English football and a potential reform. Why did it fail? That's next here on A Kick in the Grass. Back in on A Kick in the Grass, it's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. So over the last uh, week, 10 days, English football has come under the microscope as uh, Project Big P 
picture came about. It was brought on by uh, the owners of Liverpool and Manchester United, and now joining us to tell us a little bit more about it and why it failed is Tariq Panja of the New York Times. Thanks for this, Tarek. How are you? I'm good. Nice to be with you guys again. Yeah, nice to nice to have you on. Project Big Picture. Uh, why, why did it Why did it fail? Why, why did it fail? Um, a number of reasons, but one um, main one was because it it caught people by surprise, and this idea of it being a secret plan hatched by um, two American billionaire owners who um, have been talking among themselves, and um, and the story leaked. Uh, before before they were able to present it eight days ago today, so about a week ago, this story leaked, and 72 hours later it was dead. But it might not be dead forever. So what what the what they have done is at least um, got people thinking about change, something that they haven't had. Um, they had a plan, something that we've not had for for 20 years or so here or more. Um, and uh, there are ideas on the table, some um, quite good, um, others less so. Um, and the other reason it failed, and the reason why things like this do tend to fail, is the power grab element. What, there were so many good things in this, if you, if you were to sort of do a sort of a tick box, but there's one big black mark, which was essentially um, a hostile takeover of English football, you could argue, by six of the current biggest teams led by Manchester United and Liverpool who would have uh, decision-making power over most elements of the top division and a certain degree of control over the um, bottom three uh, professional divisions as well. Um, And in that, that would mean about 14 teams, I would say, or maybe 20 teams between the sort of lower half of the Premier League and those aspirants at the top end of the uh, second tier of the championship. They would probably lose out big time in this from a decision-making perspective and probably from a financial perspective. However, all the smaller teams, a lot of them, they were they were rubbing their hands with, with this because at the end of the day, a lot of them know they're never going to play in the Premier League and this gave them some financial certainty. So it's kind of a, a, a clever move in a way by the, 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 the kind of owners of Liverpool, Manchester United to kind of include these minnows in the in the talks so if you think england has 92 professional clubs i would argue at least two-thirds of them would have backed this how much do you think rick perry's involvement in this and his you know the way he came out so publicly in support of it um damaged the cause here well hard to say because look you have to know who Rick Perry is, a uh, bit of background. He was the first chief executive of, of the Premier League when it was formed in 1992. And he was also, and this is crucial, the um, chief executive of Liverpool uh, and has very close links with the club and, st- and with John Henry, who he had been talking to for a number of years, so about two or three years about doing something to, to um, change the structure of English football, perhaps... Uh, to make it more rational in the eyes of some. Now, so that, there's that relationship, is there? Rick then, earlier this year, was appointed the chairman of the English Football League, so the, 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 the three divisions beneath the Premier League. And that sort of set the stage for this, because you've got Rick and, um, and John Henry and then um, Joel Glazer from Manchester United, 
who already had this relationship, and then the man who you were going to negotiate with on uh, on the other on the, on, the, on behalf of the um, lower tier teams is Rick Parry himself. So you you kind of had a perfect storm here for for this situation. And look, I was I was bemused uh, as to how this how why Rick was fronting this, and uh, there was a call. That Sunday, the story broke, and um, first of all, we asked to find out, is it true? Because it was such a big deal, uh, and that quickly appeared to be the case, and they were quite a long way down the road. And they said, look, we're going to arrange a um, an on-the-record briefing with question mark. I'm thinking, who is it going to be? Is it going to be John Henry? Is it going to be um, Joel Glazer? Is it going to be whoever else have they got on board? Uh, because a lot of this is, a lot of the press has been the, the Premier League aspect of it. But lo and behold, we have Rick Parry selling this to the world. And that did seem a bit strange because I'm wondering if John Henry has been thinking about this for three or four years, at least be brave enough to talk about it. And we still haven't heard from the man. It it does feel kind of uh, scummy that uh, Liverpool and Manchester United will, would try to use the pandemic to, to gain even more power for themselves in the game, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean... That's what it looks like on the surface. Now, if you were to take them at the word, look, they were doing this for um, uh, um, wanting to do something for a number of years. And it was just like we couldn't find the right moment. And, and lo and behold, we have a <laughs> pandemic, uh, financial uh, insecurity everywhere you look. These clubs um, at the lower tier saying they're going to they're going to they're in such desperate straits that they that a lot of them, they're saying they won't be able to pay their salaries after November. So that that you have that situation. And you have this this number. I don't know where this number actually comes from. You have a number two hundred and fifty million pounds that has been doing the round. This is the number that the Championship um, first uh, Division One and Division Two, League One and League Two say they require to get through this moment of the pandemic. And their government in uh, in Great Britain have said, well, well we're not going to pay it. The Premier League is loaded. You pay them. So this this 250 million has been hanging over these negotiations. So the if you want, uh, some people are calling it the bribe is all right. We'll give you the 250 million now, and you you sign away your life to us. And that that's that's what um, really really um, put a few noses out of joint as well. You know, one of the things I I wondered about this is, and, and you know, I guess absent sort of any personal any personal statement uh, or, or any willingness of John Henry or the Glazers to go out and try to, uh, you know, try to sell this publicly. I mean, I'm not sure the Glazers understand that no one would listen to them anyhow, but, but absent that, you know, if you dig down deeper, I mean, I've always wondered about this whole notion of, of, of parachute payments. Like, I've always wondered why there simply isn't a relegation clause, right. In every contract or whatever, where your wages are cut by a certain percentage. And, you know, if you want to in include a clause that allows a player to uh, to examine other options in the in the event of relegation, uh, that's fine. But that just that that just kind of that kind of makes sense to me. And some of the other stuff, you know, is anybody going to cry if the League Cup is is scrapped? I don't know. Uh, 18 clubs in the premiership instead of 20. If I'm going to free up some some midweek days so I can actually, my coach can actually coach and my players can actually uh, recover. Like there's a, there's a lot of good in this. And I'm wondering maybe Tariq, if at the end of the day, this wasn't one of those things where let's just throw everything out there and hope that even if, even if two of five ideas get through, 
it's probably going to help the big teams because the big teams, if you have less midweek games, theoretically, you're probably going to open up the possibility of, of, of more, maybe more European games. Like I, I just see, I can yeah. see some good stuff in here. The, 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 like the, the, what you listed there, a lot of that is, is, is good. Um, and the, the soccer in general, whether it's in the UK or on a pan-European basis, there is a lack of trust uh, over motive mm. that is kind of embedded understandably in culture. Think, right yes yeah. so so you know it's hard to take people with you um and then when when um headlines um appear that have contained the words secret plot that makes it even harder <laughs> to, to 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 sort of get people on your side but yeah look you, you're quite a lot to unpack from what you've you've said there uh, the 18 team scenario that has kind of been at the back of a lot of people of people's minds across the bigger clubs um within the european context so you have um uh Agnelli, the, the the chairman of juventus who's also the the chairman of the european clubs association that that umbrella body for the big clubs, saying um in speeches for the last two years that the leagues have to be reduced to 18 teams in order to um uh, free up room not for extra coaching but for um uh, an expanded um, European setup, so Champions League, Europa League, mm -hmm. and the conference or whatever comes there. Because for for teams whose leagues have have been destroyed, and I use that word, um, and I don't mean to be provocative, but um, Serie A, I see they're trying to um, recover now with Inter maybe challenging and, and a few others has been has been moribund for for years and we have juventus winning every year juventus don't like that either but you know they win every year so it's not very interesting and you look across the board germany by munich um you look in france and paris saint germain um spain maybe this year will be different but for, for various reasons um the, that competition may we may see um, a bit more drama there but but there has been a general kind of degrading of competition um across the board so those big teams they want to play each other more often and um this all comes on the back of that reform debate for the champions league so whatever happens we're going to we'll know in the next 18 months what the future of the champions league from 2024 is it's going to be different there's going to be more more games so you need that room so that that that's that's part of the debate for the 18 teams and then you mentioned um parachute payments why why this stuff isn't baked in uh, that that's a good point. Again, it's to do with um, with trust because you should you could argue that the league should um, sanction that from the top and say mm -hmm. every contract, mm -hmm. but they they don't do that because they're competing with players. This is maybe for your listeners in the United States. You guys have got a closed um, environment where you're not competing for talent across um, geographies. Right. So in the in the player transfer market. You're competing with clubs outside of the Premier League and, and in Spain and, and Italy, etc. So you're always looking for an edge. And an edge is what actually pushes these clubs to do things that they probably should not. Um, and then, you know, and then the relegation, the parachute payment was there to, to sort of soften that, soften that blow. And I, I agree. What it does is move the problem to the second tier because those teams who aren't getting the parachute they're gambling with money that they might get tomorrow should they get in the Premier League. And if they don't, they're facing a financial catastrophe. So th this is a mess. 
and it, it does need to be um, addressed um, quickly. Um, it has need to be for, for, for a long time. Well, I mean, the balance of power is, is always favored the, the richest clubs, but, but it does feel now, Turek, that the, the pandemic is, uh, it's just pushed that even further because they're the ones that can, that can manage this financial situation the best. And, and even more so to that point, it, it feels like given the, the transfer business in the Premier League and comparing it to, to elsewhere in Europe, that you know, Premier League clubs have, have managed this situation, have been able to manage this situation better than, than any of Europe's top five leagues. Well, um, they, they, they come from a, from a position of strength. So if you look at their TV contract, um, yeah, they lost um, uh, hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars, but it was so far more significant than any of their rivals that they can cushion it a bit better and then supplement that with, you look at their ownership groups and their, their owners are wealthier than, 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 than those elsewhere as well. So you've got quite a strong... Um, strong base there. The 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 so they 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 can they can cushion some of this, especially the the, the very the very biggest ones. Um, the 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 other aspect which is different here is this pyramid that we've just kind of talked about with the four mm -hmm. divisions in England. Now, it seems to be a sacred cow here, and people don't like change. And we're look, we're all nostalgic. I, you know, I can ask you can ask anyone. I bet. If you ask me who's your favourite player, whatever sport it is, probably when you were 16 years old and everything was brilliant then. But, you know, times move on. We have 92 professional football teams in, in England. Now, take even if you take a pandemic away, right, often there is a financial crisis at, at half a dozen or more of these teams, right? And it's to do with the fact that their, their their interest is dwindling in in these in in these teams as as the as society changes as well. Now, I'm, uh, what what I've always wondered is um, professional football. It's a funny word. That means I'm paying you full time to play football, um, uh, and and there has to be people willing to pay for that, right? Uh, and if if they can't sustain those salaries. Do those players all need to be professional way down there, four tiers down? I'm not so sure. And maybe that should be part of a discussion as well, rather than just distributing um, money um, down, which needs to happen, of course. But what, what they're spending their money on needs to be considered too, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a conversation that's that's not ending here. Uh, Tarek, thank you for uh, for sharing some of this info today. We appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Happy to be with you. Take care, guys. All right. The final segment of A Kick in the Grass is coming up. Your listener questions in injury time. It is A Kick in the Grass. Final segment of A Kick in the Grass. It is Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. And uh, our fantasy Premier League, the combo of Harry Kane and Sun Hyung-min was big for the top scorers in the Kick in the Grass fantasy Premier League. Uh, Arteta's rogue hair, managed by Ian Coleman, and uh, Langley City FC with Alan Jackson on the touchline led the way with 80 points on match day five. Uh, Jeff, you are still struggling way down the table. I, I, <laughs> I am not making any excuse here other than to say that I am, I am zeroed in on winning the Sportsnet 590, the, fan, <laughs> the, the, the fantasy draft, and, and I'm doing quite well. I'm doing quite well there, so that's my only... 
that's my only, uh, I mean, I've just put, I, I actually captained somebody who scored this weekend in Son. So, so that, that's, big. that's, a, that, that's big. That's, that's, that's it's big. a good start. You're, you're slowly climbing up the table. Uh, well, you can... slowly is. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I, I'm trying, I, I, I don't want the listeners I, I don't want the listeners to be to be intimidated. And those of you who haven't joined yet, you can still join now and you'll only be like 40 points behind. Me. So, I mean, you know, I, I, that's my plan is to make it as open to people as possible. I, I you know what I'm like, Danny, I'm a man of the people. So everybody join, everybody join. You, you won't be that far behind me. And in three weeks, you'll have passed me. <laughs> and so you can- there you go. You can do that by going to PremierLeague.com. Click on the Fantasy tab and enter our league using the code PPIBD6. Before we get to injury time, a quick thought on an interesting story from Scotland involving Canadian international Scott Arfield as Steven Gerrard was quoted as saying, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Thankfully, Scott will not be going on international duty anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we haven't heard official word from Scott Arfield that he is uh, retiring from international football, but I think I speak for everyone in saying that would be a major blow to the hopes of a 2022 World Cup chance for Canada. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I mean, part of it, I was thinking, you know, maybe the correct maybe the correct way to look at it is international football is retiring from Scott Arfield because we don't, you know, the Canadian Canadian right. schedule is, shall we say up in the air. Oh, look, I, I think that's probably part of it uh, with Scott Arfield, but here's the thing to keep in mind. You know, you know we've had so many instances in this country where we've, we've always fretted about uh, dual citizenship and, and, and parents. And will this guy play for this country? Will he play for Canada? Um, I mean, it's, it's not just, it's not just unique. It's not unique to Canada. There are a bunch of there are a bunch of countries that go through that. Scott Arfield, though, thinking back to a couple of interviews I've done with John Herdman and a couple of chances I've had to talk to John Herdman about Scott Arfield. Uh, Scott Arfield was a guy that didn't have to play international international football if he didn't want to. I mean, he had he made a nice career for himself in England. Um, you know, he he's well regarded. He's still playing very well, and he's not a guy at the end of his tether by any any stretch of the imagination. But what he did when he joined the Canadian national program is he helped to facilitate a transition period in the men's program. And as someone who throughout his career has been a leader, right? He's identified as a leader. He's captain material. He's been that way since he, he first came into, came into soccer. If you know anything about John Herdman, you know that he is very big on sort of having leadership groups and structuring an off field approach to psychological and emotional development among his um, um, amongst his players, because being the, the head coach of the Canadian men's program, there's a lot of issues there. You're dealing with a lot of guys, and now a lot of countries, big disparity in age, um, different leagues. You know, you've got you, you've got all sorts of balls in the air, and you're also bringing in guys from the from 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 the Canadian Premier League as well now. And the thing that 
that Scott Arfield was able to do as an identifiable international player, as a guy a lot of people from different backgrounds were aware of, is he was kind of able to have a foot in every camp. You know, uh, there's the MLS camp in the Canadian team. There's the young guys who are over in Europe camp. There's the CPL camp. And then there's kind of Scott Arfield who moved very comfortably among groups and served as a conduit for a lot of John Herdman's, uh, has served as a conduit for a lot of John Herdman's uh, philosophies. And not only that, I mean, you've seen him play. He's a machine on the field. He's He gave Canada something they really didn't haven't had, I think, Danny, and that a guy who was very comfortable in big situations. Right. You know, he's yeah. going to Honduras, go, playing in Mexico. He's he's played in places like that. You know, that's that's not a big deal to him. So if he if he has wrapped up his relatively brief international career with Canada, I'll tell you what, he's a guy who left a real mark. And if, if this team does, if Canada does advance, you know, if we do get to the World Cup, uh, there will be, a you know, Scott Arfield deserves a lot of praise and a lot of thanks for what he's done with these young players. Yeah, and uh, we'll we'll be trying to get Scott on the show and and see uh, just what this is about. And it may just be that yeah, uh, Canada isn't playing right now, so they're not having to worry about Scott going on international duty as he normally would here in an October or a November mm -hmm. uh, international break. He is just thirty one years old and is uh, really playing some of the best football of his career. Uh, with Rangers who topped Celtic over the weekend in the old firm derby. Uh, and I was going right. to say, Danny, yep. I was just going to jump in too. And that's, you know, doing a little bit of reading on it. I, I, Scott Arfield is important to what Steven Gerrard wants to do with that, with that Rangers project. And that's what it is. It's a project. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's at his age, 31, I think that's the type of thing that, that would probably appeal to him. He's always been a guy who's also, uh, you know, coaching's always been in his future so i can kind of i i can see why he would focus on that right now because that is a massive project if they can if you can resurrect rangers if you can resurrect rangers there's i mean there's a special place in, in football heaven for you if you do that the celtics fans may not think that way but i think soccer fans in general would love to see rangers back where they belong you know uh, among the real big clubs in in europe all right, injury time. It is your questions for us here on A Kick of the Grass at DanRicho underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. Our DMs are open. You can get in your questions at any point throughout the week, even on Instagram at DanRicho. I throw out a graphic that you can respond to uh, I on start, Sundays Dan. in the lead up. All right, you got to start. Well, what do you, I, I what do you got? I got to start here. This is, I don't know if this is this dude's real name because it sounds to me like he's somebody who knows you. So I don't know, but this was a DM. <laughs> Do you know anybody named Grant? Grant. Uh, I, I know a, a few Grants. Uh, Grant mm. Wall. Um. No, no, but like from your days in Toronto, somebody who maybe has, you know, dirty pictures of you or something like that. Uh, maybe not, no. Okay, well, anyhow, Grant's question is very simple. Question for Dan. Okay. Sassuolo. Is that how you pronounce it? Sassuolo? Yeah, Sassuolo, yeah. What's up with that? That's all the question. That, that, that's the only question. That's the only question. Well, they had a 4-3 win over Bologna yeah. uh, in their derby. Uh, I, I do believe I'm I'm just, let me just call up the Serie A. Oh, my God. Look, they're ahead of a bunch of teams, Dan. Yeah. 
They are second in the table. Sassuolo is... Uh, What's up with them? Uh, they are one of the more fun projects in all of European football, and I've, you know, I, I've really liked what they've done for many years in in Serie A. But they've, you know, they've held on to Domenico Berardi, and he's done really, really well for them. Uh, they've resurrected, uh, well, resurrected. Uh, they've created a star out of Francesco Caputo uh, as well, who has just been lighting the Serie A on fire and is scoring pretty much as many goals as Ciro Immobile and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo as well. So it, it comes down to they're a team on a budget that has a great coach in Roberto De Zerbi, who I think is one of the better young coaches in all of Europe and is destined for one of the big Italian clubs in the future. And they've done really well on their budget by creating a system, an identity, a strong pressing system. You know, their pressing system has been looked at by Pep Guardiola and, and some mm. of the other major managers around Europe because of how innovative it really is. So Sassuolo, what's up with them? Uh, they're a really good squad. Are they going to stay in the top four of Italy? I, I doubt it, but uh, they're they're a team that a lot of people should be taking note of. All right, there Does you go, answer? Grant. <laughs> I hope I, I hope thought I did there that might well have been a Grant. story behind it or something like that, but anyhow. Uh, no, I, other than uh, I think they're just really uh, really nice. Uh, former Canucks goalie Eddie Lack on Instagram wants to know uh, <laughs> where will Manchester United finish in the table. Uh, I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll leave this for you mostly, but uh, I'm not feeling too great about my top four um, prediction for Manchester United. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, they could, you know, they could sneak into the top four. But if you're asking me right now, who's better than them? Well, uh, we can go alphabetically. Uh, I mean, I think Everton's Everton. Frankly, I think Everton's a better club right now. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester City, uh, Arsenal, I, Tottenham and Chelsea, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going on with Chelsea. I, I really wonder if maybe, I don't know, I, I wonder if Frank Lampard isn't over his head. And I know you've said that, you've thought that. Yeah, they can't defend. You know, they they it's, can't it's defend. I just I don't know what to make I don't know what to make of, of, of Manchester United. I, I really don't. I I don't have any clue. I'm not I'm not as confident as I was of them getting in the top four as you know as I as I was at the start of the season. There's just too many they they just they do too many things wrong. Yeah. That's the way I'd put it. And I don't think it's a lack of effort. I just think they've got some players who aren't very good playing big minutes. I, uh, you know, I think they, I mean, they threw their 11 for a loop on the weekend, uh, which was really interesting. But the one thing that, you know, Manchester United, they do have a, a pretty big squad. So uh, if you compare that to an Everton, you know, Everton suffers a, an injury or two, you know, how much of a drop off is there going to be? Whereas Manchester United, for the most part, I think can can cover uh, a couple of injuries uh, to their squad. Uh, finally, Dang, it's not a, it's not a good thing that Juan Mata has already played a Premier League match. <laughs> I mean, with all due respect to him, with all due respect to him, uh, and look, he's been a good servant and you know, wonderful guy, all that stuff. Uh, that's not a good sign. And, and, and you know what's even worse that they won the match that he played is not a good sign. Yeah, that that he is that that he's in the side. Um, it's just not. 
it, it's it's kind of crazy that, that that happened already. And I know a lot of United fans, having spoken to them, were like crying at the sight of that 11 uh, on, on the weekend uh, when it came out. Uh, a couple of more questions that we answered earlier. Mike G wanted to know if uh, Pickford should get a three-plus match ban. Uh, he nah. will not be getting one. And according to Jeff, he, he doesn't deserve one either. Um, Mike on Instagram is uh, asking, is Milan back? Um, we talked about Zlatan a little bit. I'll say this about Milan. They are... I didn't think of them as a top four contender coming into the year. I now see them as one. And potentially even top three mm. in Serie A. Uh, not just because of Ibrahimovic, but I think that squad, they've done... They finally got the right people in place uh, to put a, a real team together rather than just, you know, throwing crap at the wall, which is what they were doing for a lot of years uh, with that, that squad. Uh, but we are plumb out of time, Jeff, so we'll have to reconvene next week with more of these stories and more of your listener questions. And again, get in on our Fantasy Premier League. Join it at PremierLeague.com, PPIBD6. Manchester United and Chelsea, uh, bound to be an 8-7 final on the weekend, yeah. Jeff, and I can't wait yeah. to talk about it next week. Load up in Timo Werner, everybody. <laughs> Load up. Load up in your Chelsea players. Come on. Uh, we'll talk next week here on A Kick in the Grass. <laughs>